Tell it to the judge on Sunday. Tell it to him, leave me alone. Tell it to the judge on Sunday. You can call him at home. Welcome to Torts Illustrated, Episode 4. I'm your host, Marie. You know what, guys? It's disclaimer time. I am a lawyer. I am not your lawyer. This show is for fun, and we here on Torts Illustrated do not dispense legal advice. If you want legal advice, hire a lawyer. If you've done something bad enough, the government might even give you one. Okay, now, welcome to Torts Illustrated, where we discuss all things weird and wacky in the law, from old England to today. It's the holiday season, folks, and I don't know about your families, but mine is pretty into all the Christmas traditions, like... Parties for hosting, marshmallows for toasting, and caroling out in the snow. But the second part of that verse is where it kind of goes off the rails for me. Maybe this is a thing for some people, but my family's Christmases have never included scary ghost stories, like the song says. So in the spirit of being very accurate to holiday songs, today we've got Scary Ghost Stories! You thought you were getting a Christmas episode, didn't you? That's for next week. This week, we're going to talk about a case that you might have seen in some clickbait articles recently. Stambovsky v. Ackley, also known as the Ghostbusters ruling. This is the case that found a house was haunted as a matter of law. And no, the judge wasn't a nutjob or a huge fan of the movie Casper. So how did this happen? Well, let's wade into the facts. Many thanks to Vicky, who suggested this directly, and of course to the many people who posted it in Facebook articles. This case is from 1991, so a lot more recent than the cases we've discussed in previous episodes, and it was originally heard in front of the New York Supreme Court Trial Court Division. Fun fact about New York, the names of their courts are totally backwards. The Supreme Court is not the highest court, it's the lowest. New Yorkers, they just have to be special, don't they? Whereas we in Chicago know we're special, because our pizza is casserole and our lake is frozen. Anyway, I digress. Helen Ackley and her family owned a house in a city which is probably pronounced Nyack, but I can't help but read like Nyack, the sound I imagine a yak might make. The house in Nyack, which is still there today, is a beautiful old turreted Victorian house, and it sits at the end of a cul-de-sac on the banks of the Hudson River, which sounds lovely, and from what I've read, Nyack, New York seems like a peaceful hamlet just on the outskirts of the city, but the Ackley family did not find it so peaceful after they bought the house in the 1960s. You see, their house had a problem. Not dry rot, not termites, a poltergeist. According to a Reader's Digest article published before this case and actually written by Helen Ackley, the lady of the house, this house was built in the 1900s and it had served as both a boarding house and a private resident, and some of those residents decided to stick around. The Ackleys heard rumors about the house's reputation and soon began to experience it for themselves, hearing footsteps when no one else was home, knocking, doors violently opening and closing... In her article, Helen described three particular spirits, who certainly would be alarming, but actually seem pretty friendly overall. She wrote about an experience with one of them as follows. He was sitting in midair, watching me paint the ceiling in the living room, rocking back and forth. 
I was on an eight-foot stepladder. I asked if he approved of what we were doing to the house, if the colors were to his liking. He smiled and he nodded his head. Now, I personally would love a ghost who approved of my decorating. They would be some nice reassurance. And apparently Helen Ackley did too. Of course, not all accounts were so glowing. A man who eventually married one of the Ackley children and later moved into the house wrote in a book about the haunting that he too experienced the ghosts, one on Christmas Eve. He said, I was home alone due to various activities. That doesn't sound suspicious at all. I was playing Christmas elf in the living room, putting gifts together, and it was totally quiet in the house. But after a while, I kept hearing a muffled conversation coming from the dining room around the wall. I would get up and walk over, and nobody was there. I felt like I was being watched. Hey, maybe they just didn't like the wrapping paper he was using. Maybe it clashed with the paint. But as you can probably tell from the wide variety of source material, the Ackleys seemed to be pretty proud of their haunted house, and they certainly weren't afraid to tell others about it. Helen, in addition to her Reader's Digest story, talked to local newspapers and some national papers on three separate occasions between 1977 and 1989, and the house was included on a walking tour of the city as the local haunted house. In 1989, however, the Ackleys decided to sell the house. Not because of the poltergeist, but because of another specter that haunts all of us as we grow older, the eventual move to Florida. So they hired a real estate agent, listed the house, and eventually received and accepted an offer of $650,000 from a Mr. Jeffrey Stamvovsky from New York City. It's a lot of money now, and it was even more money back then. To seal the deal, he put down a deposit of $32,500. Stambovsky wasn't a local, so he hadn't heard any of the poltergeist stories surrounding the house, and the Ackleys didn't tell him. But once he and his wife heard the stories, they were horrified, and they wanted nothing to do with this haunted house. They refused to show up for the closing, and although they weren't obligated to buy the house, the Ackleys refused to refund their deposit. So the Stamboskis were out a lot of money, and of course they sued. Now, for ease from here on out, and because Stamboski is a hell of a mouthful, I'll usually refer to them as the buyer and the seller. Remember, the sellers are the Ackleys, and the buyer are the Stamboskis. In the lower court, the buyer's complaint was dismissed, although the court was reluctant, because although they felt that something wrong had happened to him, they couldn't figure out what course of action they could take against the seller for not disclosing the ghosts. But he did appeal, and on appeal, the court took up his case. In the appeal, there were two issues. One, is the house haunted? And two, if it is, what duty does the seller owe to the buyer to disclose the ghosts? Now, the word duty is something you'll hear pop up a lot in the law. Hopefully you're not giggling at that word. And the reason it comes up so often is because it's a way to determine how at fault you are in certain scenarios. So for example, you owe a different duty to someone who you invite into your house and someone who breaks into it. Same sort of idea, you owe a different duty to a customer that you've invited into your business and someone that you've hired to work in your business. There's a lot of shades of meaning there. But before I cause any horror flashbacks to the bar exam for the lawyers that are listening, let's talk about the first issue, is the house haunted? Because that's why this case makes for such good headlines. 
You see, the court didn't actually really argue the first issue. Instead, they decided that as a matter of law, this house was haunted. Now, this isn't based on any paranormal evidence or using ghost hunters, but actually on all those newspaper articles and tours that we talked about. The court basically ruled that it doesn't matter if the ghosts are real or not. The point is that the Ackleys talked about the ghosts so much that they pretty much created this whole ghost situation. They pushed these stories and created the house's reputation in the community as haunted. So the seller was what we call estopped or prevented from making the argument that the house isn't haunted in front of the court. You can't go around telling stories to all the papers and your neighbors and then just pretend that that never happened when someone challenges you on it in court. And in fact, the court said that the impact of the reputation thus created goes to the very essence of the bargain between the parties or the deal here. And it greatly impairs both the value of the property and its potential for resale. So instead of allowing the parties to waste the court's time trying to prove whether ghosts are real or not, they just assumed as a fact of the case that ghosts are real. The second issue addresses whether the seller of a house has a duty to disclose something like this to the buyer they're selling to. Just in case I haven't convinced you that I'm the lamest person you know, this is what I really love about this case because it's the most interesting version of what I do as a real estate lawyer. And it really isn't about the paranormal. It's about contracts and what you can and can't do. Hopefully I won't get too into the weeds here. If I do, please feel free to email me and tell me to never do a property law case again because I just can't help nerding out on them. Now, every state has slightly different laws in all areas, but especially when it comes to property, which is why real estate is a very state-specific area of law, and which is why at work when people in other departments call me with a question, I always have to give them the maddening answer of, well, tell me what state it's in, and then I'll look it up and get back to you. Because realistically, the answer could be very different depending on what state it's in. Relating back to this case, the state of New York, at least at the time of this case, applied the rule of caveat emptor to the sale of real estate. Caveat emptor is a property law doctrine that literally means buyer beware. You've probably heard that phrase before. Generally, this means that unless the seller actively conceals a defect, the buyer takes the property as is. The idea is that it's their job to discover any problems and to sort them out before the sale. This is why usually when you buy a house or a condo, you get an inspector in after your offer is accepted so that you can find any defects and you can work out who's going to pay the cost to fix them with the seller before you're left with the house and the seller has run away. Now, you can contract around this, which is why in commercial real estate, you'll usually see certain representations and warranties written into the contracts that state what condition the property is in and pass that liability over to the seller for a certain amount of time past closing. But in a residential scenario like this, those warranties aren't really there because these are smaller contracts between individuals instead of big corporate entities. So under New York property law at the time, the buyer really didn't have a leg to stand on. But the judges here didn't feel like the law as it stood was really fair in this case, since it was so... out there. The judges seemed to have an awful lot of fun with this opinion, so I'm going to read a fairly decent chunk of it to you, so you can fully appreciate how much they must have been chuckling to themselves as they were writing this. From the perspective of a person in the position of the plaintiff herein, 
A very practical problem arises with respect to the discovery of a paranormal phenomenon. Who you gonna call, as a song title to the movie Ghostbusters asks. Somehow judges manage to sound as lame as possible while quoting pop culture. Applying the strict rule of caveat emptor to a contract involving a house possessed by poltergeists conjures up visions of a psychic or medium routinely accompanying the structural engineer and the Terminex man on an inspection of every home subject to a contract of sale. It portends that the prudent attorney will establish an escrow account lest the subject of the transaction come back to haunt him and his client, or pray that his malpractice insurance coverage extends to supernatural disasters. In the interest of avoiding such untenable consequences, the notion that a haunting is a condition which can and should be ascertained upon reasonable inspection of the premises is a hobgoblin, which should be exercised from the body of legal precedent and laid quietly to rest. Obviously, the judges are having a really fun time with words here, but what they're saying is that you can't expect someone to possibly ascertain whether there are ghosts in a property. It's nonsensical, and it creates this area of circumstances that sound rightfully absurd. So after quoting Shakespeare and some more movies and making corny jokes like the plaintiff hadn't a ghost of a chance, the court decided that although caveat emptor would normally leave the buyer with no recourse, or more colloquially, shit out of luck, fairness would allow them to bend the rule a little. They decided that even the most meticulous inspection of the house couldn't have revealed ghouls, so the buyer couldn't be expected to know about them. Although considering five minutes ago they decided ghosts are real as a matter of law, you'd think, you know, he might have seen them on an inspection. The seller, on the other hand, not only knew about them, but seemed to be willing to tell anyone except the buyer all about the ghosts in great detail. While generally mere non-disclosure doesn't make the seller liable, not every act of non-disclosure is the same. Like I said earlier, an active concealment of a problem isn't covered. So in this case, we fall into a weird, murky middle territory between plain silence and the seller purposefully hiding a problem. Caveat Emptor is really meant to deal with the physical condition of the property, not invisible creatures haunting the residents. Not disclosing the ghost might be within the letter of the law, it might be technically legal, but it's not in the spirit, because the buyer has to have some sort of preternatural powers or be a local familiar with local legend to discover what they might consider a major defect of the property. So in the end, the court decided that while the law says one thing, policy pushes them to do another. They found a compromise. The buyer got his deposit back and could go on to buy a non-haunted house, but he didn't receive any other damages. For our non-lawyers, damages are, in a very simple sense, to cover something that is really a whole class in law school, the money that you get from winning a civil case. So in this case, the court felt that the deposit was enough to make right the wrong that had happened to buyer, but not so much that it punished seller for not really doing anything wrong under the law. Now this story has a happy ending for everyone. The buyer was able to get a new house, and the case generated a ton of publicity, so the Ackleys had no problem selling the house and making their move to Florida. Now, take this information for what it's worth because it comes from a tacky paranormal-themed webpage that looks like a 1990s GeoCities build. But supposedly, Helen Ackley actually missed the ghost, 
and she always wished that they could have moved with her. She went so far as to hire a medium and try and contact them. She died in 2003, and her son-in-law has supposed that if she has a say in it, her ghost is probably now back in that old house with all her old friends. Now, the Ghostbusters case is weird and wacky, but it's not actually applied a lot, because it covers such a strange little workaround to standing law. We've talked about how common law builds on itself, but sometimes there's a case that's so weird that it sort of sits on its own, maybe getting referenced now and then. But not often, because it's just not that relevant, or because the judges found a unique way to apply the law that really only works for those exact facts. And that's pretty much the case here. But haunted houses and grisly murders do show up a fair amount in the world of real estate. Presumably, you'd want to know if someone was hacked to pieces in the house you're looking to buy. Maybe right on top of those lovely granite countertops. But it actually varies state to state whether they have to tell you or not. In Arizona, for example, you have to disclose material facts, which you'd think a murder would be, but it's actually meant to cover things like a leaky roof, not a saw-type scenario that happened in the basement, so you don't have to disclose a murder there. In California, Alaska, and North Dakota, you have to reveal deaths that have happened within a certain amount of years. And in Alaska and California particularly, it's only if it's a murder or a suicide. A natural death doesn't count. In other states, it's not codified, and it's undecided until it comes up in courts, like it did back in 2011 in Pennsylvania. A woman who bought a house in the state then discovered that a rather horrible murder-suicide had taken place in her new home, and she sued the sellers. But her case was dismissed because the judges decided that in Pennsylvania, a murder-suicide isn't a material defect. And really, in every state, a horrible death and a potential haunting isn't going to directly affect your house absent floorboards warped by copious amounts of blood. What it comes down to is whether the state thinks that these types of rumors about your house will affect the value and the perceived reputation of it. It's about the stigma. Basically, are you getting what you paid for, or will this stigma affect your purchase in a meaningful way? Lawyers have some very mixed opinions on this. Daniel Warner, who's a legal scholar, argued in an article delightfully named Caveat Spiritus, a jurisprudential reflection upon the law of haunted houses and ghosts, that karmic-based real estate evaluation and judicial recognition of haunted houses is basically bad law that harms society, because it moves us backwards away from a scientific world and into superstition. Meanwhile, New York moved away from caveat emptor and passed the Property Condition Disclosure Act that requires sellers to make a large amount of disclosures. Of course, if the supposed haunting affects the physical condition of the house, we have a whole different situation. In Wisconsin, there was a situation reported, according to an American Bar Association article, that one local haunting caused the walls of a house to bleed. Ugh. In that case... A broker in Wisconsin would be required by their licensing agency to disclose the haunting because it has a physical manifestation. So that actually is a material defect. Finally, in some places, a realtor or a seller may want to disclose a haunting because it may actually increase the value of the property. In New Orleans, where the occult is an attraction, you'll see houses on the market proudly advertised as haunted. And in the case of the Ackley House, in 2006, this famous haunted house sold for over a half a million more than similar houses in the area. 
proving that sometimes a few ghosts are an attractive feature rather than a flaw. That's it for this week. Next week, a special guest and I will be discussing all things Christmas and how if something jolly and cheerful exists, odds are lawyers can find a way to muck it up. If you've got cases you'd like to hear about or just want to tell me this podcast is terrible, you can email me at tortsillustratedpodcast at gmail.com. Until next week, this has been Torts Illustrated, and I'm your host, Marie, asking that when you kill all the lawyers, please spare me. Mm-hmm.